Scripture reading this evening will be from Matthew chapter 21, verses 23 through 27. Matthew 21, 23 through 27. Now when he came into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people confronted him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? But Jesus answered and said to them, I also will ask you one thing, which if you tell me, I likewise will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John, where was it from? From heaven or from men? And they reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say to us, Why then did you not believe him? But if we say from men, we fear the multitude, for all count John as a prophet. So they answered Jesus and said, We do not know. And he said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Good evening. Thankful for the opportunity to be together this Lord's Day. I am also thankful for the prayers on my behalf, and uh, especially in light of, I think, uh, uh, prayed this morning that we'll be leaving to go out of town and uh, preaching a meeting up in Kingston, Ontario, Canada. Uh, I'm excited about the, the meeting. It's going to, this is going to be my second time to preach for that congregation. Uh, the church there in uh, Kingston was started maybe 20 years or so ago, 24, 25 years ago. And uh, William Stewart, he's the evangelist there. He's a friend of mine. And we uh, have been friends for a while, and he's been working hard there. It was a church that started uh, very small. It was just a few people. And here, just in the past few years, they've had some growth. We went there in 2016 for our first meeting, and maybe they had a handful of people, 15, maybe 20 people. and uh, But more like 12 to 15, I think, was where they were at. And here in the past few years, they've converted a few people, and that has just produced a conversion after conversion after conversion. And they are up to about 30 people now. And uh, so it's been really exciting for them. And so I'm going to be going and meeting a whole lot of new people uh, this time around. And so that's exciting for us. And, but it is a, a lengthy trip, and do petition your prayers over the next week or so while we're gone, a week and a half. Uh, appreciate those who are willing to fill in for me as I am going to be gone. Uh, Nick is going to be covering the Bible class next Sunday morning out here in the uh, adult class. Kyle's going to be covering me in the high school class. And then I've got uh, Gary and Brett. They're going to be filling in on Sunday for the sermons. And so... I uh, appreciate them very much for doing that. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is approached and the chief priests and the elders, they have come to him and they want to know what, where his authority is coming from. And there's a whole lot that we could dig into here, but what I want to simply observe is that there is a question that is asked of Jesus. In verse 23, By what authority are you doing these things, and who gave you this authority? Well, that question is twofold. And Jesus, in turn, asks a question. 
to show the hypocrisy of those who were questioning him. But he says in verse 25, the baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? And Jesus, he is trying to turn the tables, but what I want you to just observe very quickly is that the use of questions here. There is a question that is posed, and Jesus responds with a question. And this is really to test the sincerity of those who were asking that first question, and which all plays out where they are not willing to answer his question. And Jesus says, well, because you're unwilling to answer that, that shows that you're unwilling to listen and hear, and you don't have honesty in your heart and integrity in your heart, so neither will I answer you. This evening we're going to be focused on questions. This is our question and answer service. It is, I find it to be useful. I find it to be beneficial because you get to ask questions, you get to submit questions, and I get to study some different things, some things that are on your mind. And so I hope that we are prepared to hear the questions and to answer the questions and to think about these things. And there are going to be some questions, especially tonight, that there may be some things that you disagree with. I'll just be honest with you, that there may be some things that you hear and you're not quite certain about. And if you have questions about those things, if you doubt or if you think I'm speculating too much, then uh, please l listen and then bring back Bible verses to me uh, to listen uh, so that I can consider those other verses that you might think about. Uh, and also, if you have any other questions uh, for next time or maybe tonight might prompt some questions, please go ahead and submit them. I am starting to run a little uh, low on the questions to address for our next uh, question and answer night in a few months. And so I just ask for those two things uh, at the outset of our study. And so we will jump right in uh, to the first question that we have. Can you explain how Psalm 109 applies to Judas Iscariot? And I think this came as a result of our Bible study out here in the adult class last week when we were looking at the imprecatory Psalms in Psalm 109. And we were talking about uh, how David as uh, the author of the psalm, he is very blunt in his language. In Psalm 109 and verse 6, it says, Appoint a wicked man over him, and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty, and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few, let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless, and his wife a widow. And so you can just see that the treatment that D David is asking for, for an enemy of his, is very severe. And I think it was mentioned that this was a passage that referenced Judas Iscariot. And so in Psalm, or in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 1, in Acts chapter 1, you have as the apostles... At soon, right after the ascension of Jesus, the apostles are left and they 
are down to 11. Judas had betrayed the Lord Jesus and he had committed suicide. He had hanged himself. And in Acts chapter 1 and in verse 20, as the apostles have come together, uh, along with other disciples, about 120 altogether, they are beginning to prepare themselves for what is going to happen next. And it says in verse 16, uh, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in this ministry. And then skipping down to verse uh, 19, And it became known to all who were living in Jerusalem, so that in their own language that field was called Hakadalama, that is field of blood where Judas had hanged himself. And in verse 20 it says, For it was written in the book of Psalms, Let his homestead be made desolate, and let no one dwell in it, and let another man take his office. Peter, he quotes from two psalms, two messianic psalms. Psalm 69 is another messianic psalm. He quotes from that in the first part of verse 20. And he quotes from Psalm 109 and verse 8. Let another man take his office. And these quotations, these two quotations are from imprecatory psalms, which I believe what Peter is why he is turning to the imprecatory psalms is that he views Judas as someone who has been judged and condemned by God. That this is not just an enemy of, of, the, of Peter. It's not a personal vendetta. But that this is an enemy of God himself. This is the one who betrayed the Son of God. Speaking of Judas... And that he received just condemnation and judgment from God for his betrayal of Jesus of Nazareth. Therefore his office was vacant, his apostleship was vacant, and this allowed for them to go on and elect, if you will, someone else to the apostleship. In verse 21 it says, Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord who know the hearts of all men, should show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they drew lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. You can just see that in verse 25, that Judas had turned aside. He left the Lord. He left the apostles and so Psalm 109 is used as justification for another one to take Judas's place. And I think also as a maybe even more of a background to that is that Judas was condemned by God for his actions and his betrayal of God. And so the imprecatory Psalms would be an appropriate place to turn to.
to seek such uh, justification for their actions at that point. And so I hope that answers that first question there uh, about Psalm 109 and how it relates and is applied to Judas. Another question that we received was, will we become angels in heaven? And I think last time we did get some questions about angels or, or maybe it was demons. And I know we had a question about Satan in our first uh, Q&A this year. And I think this one is perhaps related to that. Will we become angels in heaven? And I, I mentioned in the, a few months ago that I believe that there are generally three probably very broad kinds of categories. You have deity, then you have angels or spiritual beings, and then you have humanity. Uh, and Within that, angels, they are distinct creatures from humans that God created. And I can find in, in no, uh, no verses, I can find no scriptural basis for the idea that human beings would transform into angels after death and in heaven. Uh, in Matthew chapter 22, perhaps this is what some people might uh, turn to. In Matthew chapter 22, and in verse 30, Jesus he is having a discussion with the Sadducees who uh, deny the fact that there are spiritual beings. They denied the existence of angels. They also denied the idea of the resurrection which we will talk some more about I think this evening perhaps but uh, in Matthew chapter 22 and in verse 30 and Jesus is replied to the Sadducees he says for in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven that's perhaps the closest that you could come to I think in making a comparison but what that's the the point it's a comparison isn't it I think you mouthed simile, didn't you? Using like or as. It's a simile. It's comparing two different things. And that's the only way that a comparison works is that if you're comparing two different things. And Jesus says that this is how it is about the resurrection of the dead. They are like the angels, not that they become angels. And as hard as it might be for us to see, because I think if you have in, in the New Testament, there are warnings about worshiping angels. Uh, there are passages where in John, in the book of uh, Revelation, where John, at the end of that, he sees an angel and he begins to worship and the angel says, no, don't do that. Um, angels are not to be worshiped. And yet, what we have always done, we have kind of had this interest and this fascination for the spiritual realm. Things that we don't see, things that we uh, maybe don't even fully comprehend or understand. And as hard as it may be for us to fully appreciate this point... It's not angels who are God's crowning achievement in creation. 
if there's anything that would be designated as God's crowning achievement, it would be the creation of humans. In the book of Psalms, in Psalm 8, in Psalm 8, the psalmist, he is reflecting on the glory and the majesty of God and His creation and all the created things. In Psalm 8 and verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth who have displayed Your splendor above the heavens. In verse 3, when I consider Your heavens the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. What is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? What the psalmist is just dumbfounded by is the fact that you look at all of what God has created, the sun, the moon, and the stars, all his majesty, all his glory, all his power, and what is it that he, who does he focus his attention on? Us. He goes on in verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than God, or a little lower than the angels, some translations might say, and you crown him with glory and majesty. Notice who is crowned with glory and majesty. It's man, mankind. You make Him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under His feet. All sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is Your name in all the earth. In the book of Hebrews, the Hebrew writer references this psalm. And he applies it in some ways to Jesus, but in more particularly in Jesus' work for atonement. In Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 5, it says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking, but one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then he goes on in verse 9, But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. That Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 8. But then notice what he goes on to say about Jesus and his sacrifice in verse 14. It says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly he does not give help to angels but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And he gives help to humanity. God did not come, or Jesus did not come to redeem angels. He came to redeem mankind. 
God did not come, Jesus did not come to offer salvation to angels. In fact, Paul makes that odd statement. If you want to ask this for a question next time, go ahead. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 3, there's an odd kind of peculiar question that Paul asks. And he says, do you not know that we will judge angels? That mankind is appointed as judges of angels. And so if we were thinking of this as a hierarchy, we might think of God, deity, angels, or spiritual beings, and then humans. But really, what the Bible does, it inverses those last two. And it speaks about how the scriptures do, that we will be glorified. That we will be raised from the dead and we will be glorified in heaven. We won't become angels, but we will be glorified human beings in heaven. And a question related to the nature of heaven is, will we see our loved ones in heaven? And if you have been a Christian for any great length of time, you have probably had this question. You have probably wondered this question yourself. And so I'm glad that we received this as a question for us to think about for a little while this evening. Will we see our loved ones in heaven? And I think I'm going to assume that we're probably talking about if we have faithful Christians, loved ones, friends, family. As long as they're faithful, then I think we can trust that they have the hope of heaven and that they will be rewarded with eternal life in the presence of God. And after death, I think this is something that's really important for us to understand is that just after we die, we don't lose our identity, do we? Notice in Matthew chapter 22, when Jesus is having that discussion with the Sadducees, in Matthew chapter 22, as they have presented this situation to Jesus, that they think this is kind of their best argument against the resurrection of the dead, Jesus, he very clearly says that there is going to be a resurrection of the dead, that you, they don't understand the scriptures nor the power of God. And he says in verse 31, but regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? And he quotes from the book of Exodus. In Exodus chapter 3, when God appeared to Moses, and he said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then Jesus says, He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. No. Going all the way back to the book of Exodus where Moses is speaking before God at the burning bush. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had all been dead for approximately some 400 years. And Jesus' argument hinges on 
verb tenses, okay? If you're, you may not be a big grammar person, you may not like English, but sometimes the tense of a verb is very telling. And Jesus says, what God said was, I am, present tense, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Those words spoken to Moses, Jesus is saying, prove that no one loses their identity just because they die. That's why Jesus draws the conclusion that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Just a few chapters earlier in the Gospel according to Matthew, in Matthew 17, Jesus was transfigured. In Matthew chapter 17 and verse 3, it says, And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Moses had been dead by that point for 1,400 years or so. And here Moses and Elijah are appearing to Jesus in what is no doubt a miraculous event. But they still have their identity, don't they? And that's the point. So as we are trying to answer this question, will we know our loved ones in heaven? Well, we don't forget. We don't lose our identity, okay? I think that's very clear. I think we've demonstrated that from these passages of Scripture. In Luke chapter 16, in Luke the 16th chapter, in Luke chapter 16 and in verse 23, and we could have a discussion of if this is a parable or if this is... Was, a real event, and no matter what we, where we come down on that question, what is obvious to us is that this is containing spiritual truths. This is from the teaching of Jesus. And it's about the rich man and Lazarus and how they both died. And it says in verse 23, in Hades, and is the rich man in Hades, he lifted up his eyes being in torment. And saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue. For I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted here and you are in agony. What we see here is that the rich man, he recognized Lazarus, who he did know on this earth, didn't he? And he also recognizes Abraham, who he had never met before. And Abraham tells him to remember what happened on earth, the good things that he had and the bad things that Lazarus had. So we don't lose our identity. We also don't lose our memory. Just because we die. And we enter into the Hadean realm. I think also another very powerful point is that our very names, if we are serving God faithfully and if we die 
as a faithful child of God, our very names are written in the Lamb's book of life. In the book of Revelation in chapter 3, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5, it says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. And so I just want you to see that there is still personal identity, right? Even in association with the book of life, there's personal identity, there's a personal way to recognize or identify someone. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, when David had lost a child, he and Bathsheba had conceived after their sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 23, David, after he had been praying and then in fasting, after he had learned that the child had died, he stopped praying, he stopped fasting. And he said in verse 23, But now he has died. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David, he seems very confident that he would return to his deceased son. The Apostle Paul in Second Thessalonians or First Thessalonians. In First Thessalonians chapter two, I want you to notice his confidence and what he said in relation to the second coming of Christ. He said in First Thessalonians chapter two and verse nineteen, For who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation? Is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus that is coming? For you are our glory and joy. And Paul, he had great love and anticipation for the brethren there at Thessalonica, and he anticipated seeing them in the second coming of Christ in eternity. And so it's my personal conviction that we do... And we will recognize people in heaven. Now, it does seem that our relationships are changed in some way, that our relationships are different in some capacity. In Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, as we already noted in our discussion about angels and everything, in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, it says, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage. There's not going to be the marriage relationship in heaven. And, And so it does seem that there is a change of some kind in our relationships with one another, even close-knit familial relationships, they are changed in some capacity. And even with that acknowledgement, our earthly relationships cannot be completely separated from our lives as disciples of Christ, right? Because in a, just for example, what we've been studying the past several weeks, the, talking about the married or the family relationship as a Christian, I'm supposed to be the kind of father and husband that I'm called to be, that God expects me to be. As 
wives or as mothers, you are supposed to fulfill your responsibilities as a disciple of Christ and as a Christian. That you are supposed to fulfill those obligations and roles that you have been called to fulfill. You do that because you're a Christian. But in some way, and that's where I, I have to confess ignorance that I don't know how we might know each other. I think we will be able to identify one another. But what we have to also recognize and appreciate is take the marriage relationship, for instance, between husband and wife. What really defines so much of your relationship is not just the fact that you are husband and wife, what should define your relationship is the fact that you are both Christians. That you are brothers and sisters in Christ trying to help each other go to heaven. And that should be the dominant feature in your relationship and that will help you in your roles as husband and wives. But then there's always the objection, and I'm, I'm going to go ahead and give you the objection to maybe what my position might be. That I do believe that we retain consciousness of people and events that occurred on the earth. It's what you find in Luke chapter 16. Yet someone might say, well, Sean, that, that's, that sounds nice, but if I can remember people then won't I be aware of those who are not in heaven? Won't I remember those who aren't there, those who are lost and those who are in hell? And wouldn't that make me sad? Wouldn't that cause me sorrow? Even though it says that God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. So isn't that a contradiction, Sean? But it's true that in heaven that God will wipe away all tears. That it is the place of immense happiness. But I want you to think with me that in times of loss and sorrow, think about someone that you know that was a family friend or a loved one, a family member. That you loved deeply. That you desired for them to become a Christian. And yet, through all your efforts, through all your words, through all your actions, they never were obedient to the gospel. And they die. And that's tough, isn't it? It's hard knowing that they don't have the hope of eternal life, that they were never obedient to Christ and the gospel. And in those times of grief, that can cause deep sorrow. We can find comfort in God, can't we? In 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 3, 
one of the descriptions of God is, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, in all our affliction, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. We find that even in someone that we love deeply, who's not a Christian, even though we may grieve their death and their passing, what eventually happens is that we come to accept reality. In every stage of grief, no matter which model of grief that you might look at, the last one is always acceptance. I would suggest to you that in eternity that would stand as true just the same as it does here on earth. With the idea that if we can find comfort from God even here with the passing of loved ones how much greater comfort will we find when we are in the direct presence of God Almighty? I don't think we can fathom the kind of comfort that He would be able to provide that would allow us to accept the reality of those who did not obey the Gospel. And so if that may be where I have some disagreements. And if you have any disagreement with me, that is fine. You don't have to accept the answers that I am providing this evening. I do ask, though, if you have some objection or some uh, point of clarification for me that you would bring a, a Bible verse to help us consider. As with every answer I try to provide Scripture and I want us to be reasoning from the Scriptures and the Word of God. If there is something that you disagree, please bring it to my attention from God's Word so that we can help each other. Then a final question that will serve as a way for us to conclude our study this evening is when we say we are baptized into Christ's death, what exactly does that mean? It's a phrase that we use quite often, I'm sure, here among us, and appreciate the sincere question in trying to seek out greater understanding of what that means. Baptism, it is an immersion in water. It's likened to a burial. And so you have death language that's used in association with baptism. In Colossians chapter 2, in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 12, it says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And so I want you to see that it's likened to a burial there. Also in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, another passage of scripture. 
it talks about baptism in Romans chapter 6 and in verses 3 and 4 it says, Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. And so there is a connection with baptism and immersion, not just a pouring or a sprinkling, but in a full immersion, it's like a burial. It involves going under the water, just as when someone is buried, they are buried under the earth. And that we are baptized into His death. I think primarily what that is focusing on is the benefit of Jesus' death is what we receive when we are baptized. In Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, Paul says this about Christ and His uh, death. It says in Romans 4 and verse 25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. That in his death and in his resurrection we find forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus's sacrificial death and atoning sacrifice on the cross in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in verse 3 Paul writes here for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. That in Jesus' sacrifice, in His death, that's where you find forgiveness of sins. That His blood that was shed, that is what provides the blood of the new covenant, the forgiveness of our sins. Paul even uses the phrase, the blood of the cross, in the book of Colossians, in Colossians chapter 1. In Colossians chapter 1 and verse 19, it says, or Colossians chapter 1 and verse, I think it should be, no, not verse 19. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. There is peace with God that is established through the blood and the death and the sacrifice of Jesus. And so how do we come into contact with that sacrifice? Or how do we reach His death and the benefits of that? It's through baptism. And then in the words of Jesus Himself, the call to discipleship involves the cross. A couple of times in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 9, in Luke chapter 9 and in verse 23, Jesus says, and he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus says you have to take up the cross, the instrument of death. 
a symbol of his death. In Luke, the 14th chapter, in Luke chapter 14 and verse 27, Jesus again, as he's talking about discipleship, he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. That you cannot be a disciple of Christ if you don't take the cross. If you don't accept the cross, you cannot be His disciple. The Apostle Paul would write in Galatians chapter 2. In Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. We have to be crucified with Christ, along with him. We have to take up our cross daily. That's the requirement of being a disciple And so to be baptized into Christ's death means that we find the benefit of Christ's death, namely the forgiveness of our sins through participation in the cross and the denial of self. That we take up our own cross and we are crucified along with Christ and we deny ourself. And we are crucified with Christ when we are immersed and buried with Him in baptism. Tonight, if you're not a disciple of Christ, we urge you to become His child. To become a follower of Christ to forsake this world, to deny yourself, and to be baptized in water, to have your sins washed away and to be forgiven, and to become a child of God, to be baptized into Christ's death. Maybe it is that you have made that decision to be baptized and to become a disciple of Christ, but you've not been living faithfully. We urge you this evening to make your life right with the Lord. If we can help you in some way, would you come now as we stand and as we sing?